0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the ABIP podcast. This is your host, Abhinav Agarwal, an assistant professor of medicine, cardiovascular and thoracic surgery at the Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra Northwell. During the podcast episode, we discuss unique and often controversial topics in IP. The topics discussed often do not have high quality evidence base, and we seek the opinion of our invited experts to learn their approach to specific clinical scenarios. The views expressed on this podcast are not necessarily those endorsed by the AABIP. For today's podcast, we will discuss sedation practices during IP procedures. And for this episode, we have with us Dr. Nicholas Pastus. Dr. Pastus is a professor of medicine at the Medical University of South Carolina, with special interest in both lung cancer and interventional pulmonology. Welcome, Dr. Pastus. Thank you, Abby, for having me here today. Before we get started, do you have any conflicts of interest to disclose? Uh,
1: I am involved in a research project uh, right now with Olympus uh, and have been involved in a study uh, on robotic bronchoscopy with Oris.
0: So diving into the topic itself, Dr. Pastis, we're going to talk about sedation in IP. Do you perform your inspection bronchoscopies, you know, with or without BL, with moderate sedation or do you do it with general anesthesia? And how do you decide between choosing moderate sedation versus GA for these patients undergoing either inspection, bronchoscopy, or even a bronchial lavage?
1: Well, uh, the Medical University of South Carolina has been a moderate sedation institution for many years, uh, and that's changing. Um, We've recognized, uh, in our case, that we benefit with some of the more complex cases uh, using general anesthesia. But for BALs, routine transbronchial biopsies, uh, airway inspections. We're still doing moderate sedation. Um, I think the choice is twofold. One, uh, what is your institution's availability of general anesthesia and expertise uh, and culture? So what is unique to your institution that may allow you to have one versus the other? And then the second is the complexity of the procedures uh, that we're doing. And for very simple procedures, um, patient satisfaction is definitely better with sedation, but it's not clear uh, that general anesthesia is superior. Um, It does make it it easier at times to do the procedure. Uh, Patients are more still, but uh, if folks uh, topicalize properly, um, use the medications appropriately, uh, we don't have a problem doing those with moderate sedation. But I do think... um, the needle is uh, moving. I think the uh, the net is expanding for general anesthesia in many places, but we're still doing it for complex cases only.
0: Absolutely, and as you mentioned, it's a lot of based upon the institutional practices. And I can tell you, you know, going across from institutions, even from the Midwest to the Northeast, the practices tend to change based upon the comfort of both the staff and uh, you know what previously was performed. So when you're saying complex cases, are you talking about complex diagnostic cases such as EBUS uh, or even, you know, as you mentioned, transbronchial biopsies? Are you talking about complexities in the terms of, you know, them having an indwelling stent? Which cases would you think, at least at MUSC, that you would be using general anesthesia? What, What we're
1: talking about is a procedure where we will do mediastinal staging with EBUS And then if we don't get a diagnosis, we will extend the procedure to peripheral bronchoscopy. Uh, Typically now with robotic uh, navigation in the past with a combination of uh, radial EBIS and uh, electromagnetic. Um, So uh, either either, uh, modality for peripheral bronchoscopy when combined with EBIS can be a lengthy procedure, uh, can be uh, difficult to maintain positions properly if a patient's not adequately sedated and uh, actually it can be quite stressful for a patient if they're not very comfortable for a long pe- longer period of time so for all those reasons the le- not the least of which is the is the bronchoscopist can really concentrate on these uh, these tricky peripheral lesions uh, uh, more easily with with general anesthesia so definitely for those cases and you may say well what about Ebus? Well, we've seen um, over the years uh, different data. Overall, um, the data suggests um, that there's no difference in yield, uh, complications, uh, et cetera, with uh, moderate sedation versus general. Um, that may be changing. You know, we're at a point where we're at a very high standard for EBST DNA. We are held to uh, be like a uh, median stenoscopy, and if we can't do it like that with the patient uh, still allowing us to do the procedure properly, it's not wrong uh, to use general anesthesia. Um, You may want to consider an LMA. It can be done with an 80 or 85 ET tube. Uh, If you have the higher paratracheal nodes, you just have to pull the tube further back where the LMA you don't uh, in order to articulate the scope well. So definitely general anesthesia can be done. It's not our practice except when it's combined with for bronchoscopy, but I do know many places are doing everything, uh, including uh, EBIS. And then you mentioned stents and other things. Um, As you know, um, there's been a little bit of uh, influx of some newer stents that are very easy to place uh, with uh, a large uh, therapeutic bronchoscope working channel, 2.8. And sometimes um, those can be placed in the bronch suite. Uh, quite easily. And so we will uh, sometimes do those on our general anesthesia day. Um, we will um, do dilations uh, with general anesthesia. You mentioned uh, evaluating stents. Um, you want to be cautious when thinking about removing a stent without um, the availability of rigid bronchoscopy. So you can always have the ability to remove things that could be occluding the airway. So we don't typically remove stents, um, but we may place some of the smaller stents uh, with general anesthesia. But for any stent evaluation where we think we may remove the stent, uh, we would probably do in in the OR uh, either with with the rigid bronchoscope available uh, readily or uh, through the rigid bronchoscope. So uh, I think that answers your question about the complex diagnostic cases and then um, typically typically stents. You know, stent placement, you probably could do uh, bronchial stents uh, without being in the OR with rigid bronchoscopy. But when you're dealing with the trachea, uh, you obviously can run into trouble without the rigid bronchoscope. And then you can't place silicone stents, as you know, without the rigid bronchoscope. So those scenarios would imply uh, general anesthesia.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, definitely in terms of both. Placing complex tracheal stents and uh, removal of stents, which is one of the most complex procedures yeah. and that we would do a general anesthesia with, uh, you know, rigid bronchoscopy, they being used or available. But to your point, you know, when, when doing a complex staging EBA, so when we are lo- doing, when we know that there's a positive lymph node and it's going to be a shorter procedure, but when we are doing this, and when we are held to high standards or comparison to mediastinoscopy, if not better, when we are doing these complex staging EBAs starting from the contralateral side and, uh, you know, performing each of them especially with the rose present uh, the procedures can be long so have you felt that there's a difference between uh, using such a, something like LMA where you can access the hypertracheal lymph nodes versus uh, doing them with uh, conscious sedation
1: yeah I think I think the general anesthesia uh, uh, makes it a lot easier with an LMA um, and I, I I think we're we are actually um, trending towards doing more of those cases of uh, staging EBIS. and you know, as you approach a lung cancer patient, you should approach them all as a staging EBUS because you really don't know till you're there. Uh, the CT doesn't always give you the size, you know, where we want to sample five millimeters or more um, until you get there. So I, I think there's a strong case for doing all of them. Uh, you know, if it's sarcoid and you're going after, uh, uh, you're pretty confident it's a sarcoid uh, bronch you know, maybe you could argue that's different. I will say some of the sarcoid patients can be the hardest to sedate without coughing um, right. if they have airway involvement. Um, so even those can benefit from general anesthesia. So I think the trend is moving more uh, both at MUSC and at other places more towards a broad use of general anesthesia because of what you and I kind of agreed on that we are held to such a high standard uh, for staging and for obtaining tissue that we want to Optimize our uh, our chances, um, but traditionally we have been a moderate sedation for pretty much all EBUS, but we are moving towards more general anesthesia. Some of it for us is availability. A lot of the bigger centers are uh, have uh, you know it, it requires at the anesthesia department hiring FTE to support bronchoscopy. They support and. Uh, GI fully but oftentimes they don't have the staff to do bronchoscopy and that's been our situation so some of it has been the availability of anesthesia staff uh, rather than our preference uh, where right now we have them two times a week we're trying to go to three times a week and and it really advanced from there so we are moving
0: that way. Absolutely and you know with the with the requirements now, with the molecular testing and even more tissue, the procedure duration can be longer. But absolutely, as you mentioned, you know, increasing the anesthesia time uh, can be challenging, especially at a you know when you're trying to build up a practice or even at established institutions. So switching gears a little bit from bronchoscopy to pleuroscopy, you know, medical pleuroscopy has been traditionally performed under moderate sedation. So do you ever do you perform, or at your institution, are all Pleuroscopies performed under moderate sedation? Are there situations where you would use general anesthesia or even deep sedation or uh, even a double lumen tube? Uh,
1: Well, our institution uh, is one of the smaller volume uh, medical uh, thoracoscopy institutions, and we have always used moderate sedation um, and have allowed uh, creation of a a pneumothorax uh, to provide um, uh, exposure uh, to the pleura. I have heard of institutions that use uh, anesthesia either in the OR or in their bronch suite to place uh, double lumen tubes uh, to allow uh, passive lung deflation and and more opportunity to uh, to have a space to work with. But uh, uh, the majority of the people in
0: our in our group here have done uh, moderate sedation. Absolutely. And it's been a practice here too, to do moderate sedation. So uh, when you're doing moderate sedation with these cases, are you using just local analgesics or are you using, you know, I know I've heard of some institution using, using anesthesiologists around to do intercostal block. So more like uh, moderate sedation or deep sedation with intercostal block. We
1: we have done, we have done uh, moderate sedation. Uh, with intercostal uh, block uh, above and below, anesthetic uh, to get the nerve underneath the underneath the rib, um, and uh, we have not done uh, general anesthesia typically. Um, I have heard uh, people doing you know more or less uh, sedation. Um, it's been described, uh, but I think the majority of people uh, use moderate sedation
0: uh, with local ana- analgesia lidocaine. So switching gears to the choice of drugs, once we decide that we are going to do moderate sedation, ideal sedative should be like one that is easy to use, rapid onset, short duration and quick recovery. So what are your usual go-to drugs when performing a case with moderate sedation? And do you prefer like a benzodiazepine with or without a narcotic or propofol in these cases? And what makes you choose one versus the other?
1: Uh, our, our pulmonologists at our institution um, don't uh, perform uh, deep sedation in the, in the Bronx suite. Um, we use moderate sedation, so we, we don't use propofol ourselves. There are pulmonologists that do administer uh, their own propofol. We do not. Um, obviously, when you have propofol and the opportunity for deep sedation, you have to have your airway support and everything prepared. So we we use um, a combination of fentanyl uh, and bidazolam. um, And as has been suggested, uh, there's probably a synergistic effect where bidazolam gives you some analgesia, I'm sorry, some uh, amnestic properties. Uh, You don't remember the procedure. Uh, It's a very sedating procedure uh, drug. Um, And then your your fentanyl helps you with your cough and your analgesia. So they work well uh, together, I think overall. Uh, benzodiazepines are the most commonly used drugs if you look worldwide, but I think a lot of people do see a benefit in using both, particularly in controlling cough. And you and I touched base before this call, and you know we were saying it really hasn't been a big moderate sedation drug in the last 20, 30 years other than those two. Um, people have done little variations more recently. Um, you'll see some papers on ketamine. You'll see some things about uh, Presidex, but uh, those two are kind of the the, the go-to for us. And then, you know, lidocaine, uh, we are at the point where we're just topicalizing now. There was a study that came out that, you know, pre-procedure nebulized just slowed the throughput through the suite and didn't improve patient comfort. So
0: we we just topicalized the lidocaine now. Absolutely. The study in chest last year, which talked about no benefit of nebulized lidocaine. So Speaking of studies, you know, you authored with other authors a multi-center study last year, which compared the safety and efficacy of this newer drug, uh, Medazolam, and you compare it to midazolam and placebo. So, can you tell us a little bit more about what led you to the study and what your how has it changed your clinical practice? And uh, talk a little bit more about the study itself.
1: Sure, um, uh, remi um has a different um, uh, metabolite. Um, that uh, occurs from hepatic um, uh, enzyme breakdown of the drug. And it uh, is much quicker onset and much quicker recovery uh, compared to traditional midazolam. It's about a one to three minutes uh, onset. So very, very uh, much shorter half-life than midazolam. Um, So it's felt to be very desirable. And um, the the company uh, approached uh, our senior partner uh, about a trial. um, And we ended up being the um, primary uh, lead site for a 30-site trial uh, that that was published. The final results were published in CHESS last year. And it was a parallel group design. So the double-blind part was Remy Mazlan versus placebo. Uh, the procedure would start out with a dose of fentanyl and there were top-off doses uh, allowed uh, every uh, five to 10 minutes as needed, maximum of 200 micrograms of fentanyl. So if you got placebo, you know, you still were able to get some fentanyl. Um, And then the parallel group was just uh, basically at the request of the company uh, rather than being powered to compare Remy head to head with midazolam. It was just to show uh, safety and efficacy To lead to FDA approval. So that's why they, that was their rationale for just powering the study to show benefit over over placebo. But there was an open label midazolam arm too. So there are three arms. So you could uh, argue that that was definitely a criticism of the study that, you know, it didn't really, um, it wasn't powered to show, it it did show significant, it did show clinically significant differences over midazolam, but it wasn't powered to do so um, like it was for placebo. Um, the primary outcome, uh, was a composite measure, uh, of success. So being able to complete the procedure, not using any rescue, uh, medications, um, in other words, not going over your extra 200 max of fentanyl, and then, uh, using less than five doses of either the, uh, Remy or the, uh, placebo in, um, in a 15 minute period. And really it showed, um, a uh, success rate of 86% in the remy Maslam group, only 48 in the placebo, and then 39% in the open-label, the Dazolam arm. So significant differences. Uh, there was improvement in, in some secondary outcomes as well. Uh, time to peak sedation was much faster with remy-mazelam recovery times. Uh, procedural recall was much less. The things that make patients want to undergo another second procedure, you know, they don't want to really remember it. Um, and then vitals and safety, um, there was no there was no uh, uh, work, uh, difference in that. Um, so it was a safe uh, and effective uh, drug. Um, you know, when you looked at the end of the procedure to the time patients were alert, um, I mentioned the shorter half life that Mazlam has. It was six minutes versus twelve minutes with medazlam, so so much better. And, um, you know, the FDA did approve this drug uh, this past summer. Um, we haven't started uh, changing our practices yet. Um, you know, it hasn't gone through PT committee. It hasn't gotten uh, widespread use yet. A lot of it is probably cost, uh, but I would anticipate it um, being used more in the future. I could uh, envision it as a drug uh, for centers that do pleuroscopy. I could consider it for a drug in the ICU even. Um, and then it hasn't really been evaluated, I should say in the, um, ASA classes, uh, for sicker patients. So it only did, uh, up to class three. So a study for ASA class four would probably be, uh, useful too. So there's a lot of future directions with it. Um, and, um, it's, it was exciting that I was, you know, fortunate enough to be a part of it, um, and, um, and a drug that, you know, may, may help us, um, uh, in, in our procedures when there hasn't been much that has different than versat and fentanyl for
0: the past, you know, 20, 30 years. Exactly. You know, we haven't had the new drugs, yeah. especially uh, for uh moderate sedation cases. And as we focus more and more on patient satisfaction and improved outcomes, I think it's exciting that we have a new drug that is available. And it'll be interesting to see, as you mentioned, both the outcomes in pluroscopy ICU patients and patients with a higher ASA, uh, in terms of both, uh, satisfaction and outcome so that's very exciting so one last question so when you're doing a bronchoscopy and you know i've had these issues uh, as a trainee and then I'm, I'm teaching trainees now when you're doing a moderate sedation and let's say you, you've used topical analgesia uh, with lidocaine when the patient is still you're doing a bronchoscopy and the patient is still coughing uh, how or bucking even how do you titrate these drugs like what do you use would you titrate like fentanyl or midazolam and what do you use as uh as a marker in terms of adequate moderate sedation for these cases, just for our learners.
1: Right. Um, Well, the, 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 um, the studies tend to, you know, we don't necessarily do this in real life, but use something called a MOAS score. The real life uh, target is, is a MOAS score of three, where uh, the patient is um, arousable only to loud voice. So you don't have to do a pinch of the trapezius muscle or anything like that, just loud voice, Um, And and so that's kind of our target. And that was the target uh, MOAS score of three for the Remy Mazlan study. Um, So we use that. Um, We start out with Versed uh, 2, midazolam 2 milligrams. We start out with fentanyl uh, 50 micrograms. Now, when you have a patient in their 80s, uh, you have to be careful. um, If they haven't, if they're naive to those medicines, we often cut that in half. And then we titrate from there. Uh, some centers do titrate on Versed. We titrate more on fentanyl, and the reason for that is the cough that it is blunted. Uh, uh, you know, Versed works very well, uh, but it doesn't help with the cough. And you mentioned, you know, they're often bucking and coughing. Um, and then, uh, you know, give it time. Give it at least three minutes um, before giving more. Uh, unless you know somebody's going to need more they're a young very big person there or they're uh, uh, on narcotics at home as many of our cancer patients you may start off with more than the doses I mentioned but um, just being patient um, you know it's not as rapid on and rapid off as we mentioned with Remy mazelam, or obviously propofol so uh, you just have to titrate it up and then um, depending on um, on their comorbidities the fentanyl uh, 50 to 25
0: to uh, 50 microgram increments about every three minutes. Oh, that's a very important point that you raise. Uh, you know, we have to understand the time to onset and the time to peak for these drugs and waiting because that's probably at times when these patients are coughing and we give them a lot of drugs uh, leads to uh, further sedation and, uh, you know, slower recovery at the end of the procedure. So that's why I think this new the remimazolam may be helpful Uh, in the future with a short onset of short period of onset of action and time to peak. Thank you so much for your time and expertise. Dr. Pastis, do you have any last comments? Uh, No, thank you, Abi. I I was just mentioning uh, or just thinking
1: the one other thing I would add is that you know when you get beyond 25 minutes or so if you're in and out of the vocal cords you want to make sure you remember to re-topicalize the lidocaine can start to wear off and then uh, you want to keep track of your your amount of lidocaine, um, that you don't overdo it, particularly if they have liver or uh, congestive heart failure type patients. Um, you'll see different numbers. Uh, traditionally, it's going to be uh, 7 milligram uh, per kilogram lidocaine, and kind of keep track of that, that you don't overdo it. And that can help with moderate sedation as well.
0: Thank you, Dr. Pastis. We appreciate your time and comments, and I'm sure our listeners would have enjoyed this conversation a lot. Okay, thank you so much, Abby.